It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I just sat down with my guest today, Cassandra, and we ran into some tech issues. And it showed so much about her as a coach and the work that she does. Because before we officially started recording, she asked, are you okay or do you need a moment to breathe through the frustration? And I love that question. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that, Cassandra. <laughs> like as a guest, just tuning in and being so aware and present of people's needs and asking them questions, like checking in with somebody is so amazing. And I feel like that's going to be woven into our conversation very organically. And it was actually nice to begin with too, because as I mentioned to you, we spent so much time talking, Cassandra and I, almost an hour before we started recording. Almost actually right now, it's been officially an hour since we met for the first time virtually beyond our email back and forth. And I already knew from the back and forth email, Cassandra, that you were a very compassionate, self-aware person, empathetic caring, just so many beautiful qualities, and then spending the time getting to know you and all our little tangential conversations. And we might explore some big subject matters today. And as I said, I, I don't know what direction we're going to go into, but I just can't wait. So thanks for being here with me, showing up that way. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I love it. I know, I'm so excited. And I think it's so true what you bring up of asking what people's needs are and things like that, because it can be awkward because it is that vulnerable step of saying, okay, I'm actually here with you. I'm present. I'm observing this. How are you? you know, and we don't want to step on people's toes or make them feel uncomfortable or anything like that. And sometimes the thing of even just, oh my gosh, I have a whole story on this. Even offering to help someone can be uncomfortable because what if they say no? What if they think I'm think this of them or that of them? And ultimately it's like the base root is just caring for somebody. So I am equally as excited to talk with you. And thank you so much for having me on. Wow, those statements are really powerful around the discomfort of asking someone if they need help. I can really relate to that. And I don't think I've ever thought about it that way consciously. I've definitely experienced it, you know, <laughs> even before we were talking about asking about people's pronouns. And I was saying to Cassandra how I sometimes hesitate to ask in the context or like a professional setting with the podcast, I treat it very professionally, take it very seriously. And my aim is to help the guest feel comfortable on the show because we're going to talk about so many uncomfortable things. The very least I can do is make sure that they feel comfortable in the discomfort. But even that is not my responsibility to make someone comfortable. I yearn for it. So with the pronouns, for example, Sometimes I don't ask people what their pronouns are because I'm afraid, similar to what you're saying about offering help, I'm afraid that they will feel uncomfortable being asked that question because not everybody is in that belief system or state of awareness around different pronouns. Even though that's in alignment with my values to ask, I will hold myself back because of fear of making someone uncomfortable. Oh my goodness, we're already talking about one of my favorite things. And a couple different examples of this is like what I found with my coaching clients is it's a lot of reminders that exactly what you're saying is it's not your job to make them feel comfortable. It's not your job to manage their emotions or to manage their expectations. But when we go to that, people automatically think, well, like, well, you're a jerk then. Well, you're not doing anything. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not my job to manage it. I can facilitate. I can do my best. I can communicate. I can care. I can show up. But it takes two to do that. It takes a person willing to also be vulnerable to meet you there to say, oh, I actually don't really talk about my pronouns because blah, 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 blah. Or yes, thank you so much. But that's a lot to be on the same page with somebody else so quickly. And I know I'm still getting to know you. But for people like us, crave authenticity and connection. 
it's more worth it, I feel like, or it's an easier risk to take because that vulnerability fosters that connection. But not everybody is ready for that. And I think that can be disappointing. That's when we kind of step into the, okay, well, let me fix things. Let me manage. Let me control. Let me tweak. And it's like, yeah, but I can't. I can do my best and somebody can still think I'm a total jerk. Absolutely. This actually came up for me last night. And so it's a little helpful for me to hear this from you, Cassandra, because actually it's come up a few times in the last week where with communication, I've recognized that I simultaneously thrive in communication because I feel so open and willing to be vulnerable. So I'm okay with getting uncomfortable. But what is challenging for me is other people's reactions to communication. And it's challenging, I think, because as I said, I aim to be kind and caring and empathetic and all of that. But because it takes two, I have to remind myself that I'm not in charge of somebody's reactions. But one thing that's scarring and confusing, and this is what came up last night, is I went out to dinner with some people that I know very well. And having very open, fun conversations, getting into some little deep things, checking in. And I was asking some questions about one of the person's lives and what was going on with them. And I have a tendency to be very unfiltered. And I tend to try to censor that because a lot of people are uncomfortable with straightforward questions. This has been a big theme for me, actually. I can think of multiple times this has come up this year where I'll ask somebody something. And if someone else is there, like a third party, I can see them getting uncomfortable or they'll verbalize it to me. And that's what happened last night. One of the other people that was there said to me privately, I was uncomfortable with what you were saying to the other person in this conversation because they seemed uncomfortable. And I was thinking about it. I said, well, I don't recall asking anything that seemed like out of bounds. And I realized like there's literally three people there and they're all having different experiences. There's me in the conversation asking questions. There's my perception of the person I was asking the question to and like trying to notice what was going on for them. And then there was this third party that was watching that second party's response to my questions, interpreting that. I got really in my head about it. And I thought, should I ask that person I was talking to how they're doing? Should I check in with them? Should I apologize? And I found myself like also wanting to manage their emotions. And so ultimately, I decided to just let it be because it's not my responsibility to manage how they reacted to my questions. And it's also not my responsibility to change because a third person said they didn't like the questions I was asking. It's really interesting. It is interesting. And I love that you bring that up. And I love that you pair it with your values because even hearing this story and having listened to your podcast and know you to the degree that I do, that's what you're about is having these uncomfortable conversations. I love what you said is like, I could check in. If it really bothered you, you check in. Hey, how are you doing? I connect. I think apologizing is different because we don't know what their experience is. But ultimately, I think that we empower people when we allow them to stand up for themselves, when we give them a chance to say, you know what, that actually makes me really uncomfortable to talk about. Or this seems kind of strange to me how you asked that. Could you reframe it? Because I felt a little attacked. We give an opportunity to practice healthy and really like empowered conversation and communication by not feeling like we have to tiptoe, be caring, be considerate, but practice that. And I think that on your end, it also gives you a chance to show up and say, okay, you felt funky about that. What is an authentic way for you to touch base on this? And I think that I love that story because I think it's a perfect example of finding that, right, we were talking before this about that weird gray area and everything of finding that gray area of, okay, what is within my behavior that doesn't feel right? And what is something that is outside of my control that is somebody else's projection on me or something that can be actually talked through? A hundred percent. And the gray area, I have to do a little callback because you have a gray tabby. And that's where immediately where my mind went thinking about your cat. (laughs) I'm like, okay, somehow the cat is going to weave itself into our conversation. So when I think of the gray area with you, I'm also simultaneously thinking about your gray tabby cat. But that's a little side note for fun. <laughs> I really, it, it feels delightful to bring a cat into a conversation, any animal. I love that you pointed that out too about it's 
for someone like me who grew up trying, I was trying to manage. And as I'm studying things like trauma and relationships, childhood, I'm doing a lot of research around those subject matters right now. And something that comes up over and over again is how some kids were probably inadvertently raised to feel like they had to take a lot of responsibility and manage their parents' emotions. And that makes sense. That rings true for me. I'm still processing that thought and working through how or if that showed up in my dynamic with my parents. But it sounds right because of my history trying to people please and be a perfectionist of like, let me just try to make everything perfect. Let me try to please everyone that feels safe and comfortable to me. And it feels unsafe if I don't do that. So last night, for example, was triggering for me because I'm afraid that I didn't please somebody and I want to try to make it better. And the other conversation that happened months ago, Cassandra, I was talking about racism with a Black friend of mine and we'd never really gone into it. I'm really curious about how I can be, I think the term I'll use is ally, although I'm still like trying to figure out is ally the right word? Like I just want to understand how I can be less racist, to be honest. Like, what can I do to acknowledge the history and in with myself and others and participate in a less racist world? And it's uncomfortable to have those conversations. And yet I was leaning into this with a Black friend of mine and a white friend of mine was also there. And later this person said to me, I was uncomfortable with some of the questions you were asking about racism. And this person was saying it to me as if I interpreted like they were trying to correct me or maybe even say like, you shouldn't have done that. And I felt similar to what you said. I came back to that value of, wow, like the reason I asked those questions is because I trusted that my Black friend would let me know if they felt uncomfortable with the questions I was asking. But it felt complicated because my white friend, I almost felt the same, well, maybe that person didn't feel comfortable telling me that they were uncomfortable. So it's like, it's confusing because you simultaneously want to empower somebody to let you know when you're crossing a boundary. What if they're not there yet? Like, do you play a role in like helping them or do you just like let them figure it out and take ownership over your role only? This is amazing because I think that you're right. This is all the gray area. And especially with racism, the things that I have learned is, is it's not their responsibility to educate us. Me being a white person, <laughs> I don't know if you're listening to this. It's not that community's responsibility to educate us. So what I've had to learn was it has been very humbling on my educational process is like, I'm going to f- up. I'm going to make mistakes. That is going to happen. And I can either be so worried about making mistakes that I don't try and therefore I don't grow and learn, or I make mistakes and I learn from them. So in those situations, maybe where you are in your journey is saying, hey, I have some questions. I know this is not your responsibility. Do you have the emotional capacity for this? Is this something you're interested in engaging in? Paving that way, knowing that it's something. But I also think that that's, oh my gosh, it's a couple different things. It's like active consent. And I think this reminds me of a story. So if you don't mind me telling this, so I'm in Philadelphia and I was crossing the street one day and I saw a woman who appeared to be visually impaired with a walking cane trying to cross the street. And in my head, I'm freaking out because I'm like, you can't see the light. What is going on? Like, are you going to cross this? And while I'm toiling and just like in agony in my head about, do I help? Like, what is she going to think if I do? This man who I know is on hard times, I'm assuming he's homeless right now or without a home, runs across the street, literally without hesitation, comes up to her and escorts her across the road. And I've seen this man. He's awesome. I've seen him around all the time. And I was just like, so humbled in that moment that this man literally did not hesitate, went and helped her. So again, being the person I am, I'm agonizing about this. I'm like, do better. You can learn. I am not kidding you. Two days later, another visually impaired woman is walking across the street with the cane and it's coming down. And I'm like, universe, this was a sign. I run up and the thing that I was concerned about was like, okay, what can I do? My concern is that they don't want help. So what do you do? You ask, hi, do you mind me helping you across the street? And she was hilarious. We had like a wonderful time and she made a joke and like, it was a really, really positive experience. But the thing that stopped me was that act of consent. And it's so weird because I think if we just realize we're allowed to make mistakes and 
if we have the intention of growing from them, then we will. And that's okay. There's so much in that because my mind goes to two sections. One is, yeah, you're right. Like, let's ask everybody. But some people are uncomfortable with you asking for consent. That's what it feels confusing and challenging to me is some people are like so thrown off. Just like I've experienced with the pronouns. Like part to me, that's consent. Like instead of assuming what your pronouns are, let me ask you for clarification. And sometimes in just asking for clarification or consent, people are very uncomfortable that you're asking. (laughs) And then I get even more in my head. I'm like, whoa, like because I'm trying so hard not to make them uncomfortable, I get stuck. Because I, in that position with that woman, part of me was like, what if she's offended that I'm asking if she needs help? Did that come up for you at all? That was, that was the number one thing. Like, what if I jump in there and she's like, girl, I don't need your help, like back off. And so that was my thought of like, well, if I ask her, she'll say no. And if she doesn't and it hurts her, then that's some work she needs to do. I'm doing the best I can. You got to take it and you got to do your work. I'm not going to do it for you. But it's interesting you bring that up because I love you said all of my favorite words within 30 seconds, which is like people pleasing, perfectionism, boundaries. I'm like, yes, yes. Like that's what I work on in my private practice. It's my favorite things. And one of my favorite mind blowing things about people pleasing is it's actually a form of manipulation. Like it is manipulation because we're trying to control the situation, how people are reacting, if they like us, if they don't like us. And so I feel like in those times we're asking for that consent and the other person is uncomfortable. It's like what we're doing everything right. Like, why aren't you doing your part? And in reality, that's us trying to control it again. Again, going back to your values, it aligns with your values. You're coming with an intention of communication. They're allowed to be thrown off. They're allowed to be offended and upset. And I think that that's when the best conversations happen. But I think that this is where what comes in is our response to that. We can either react or we say, ooh, I just hit a nerve. Let's love. Let's connect. Let's say, ooh, is that uncomfortable for you? I'd love to know why. Or I'm here if you want to talk about anything. I don't know. That would have been very useful for me last night with this third party who I feel like that would have been an interesting thing to explore because I found myself getting a little defensive when they said that they felt uncomfortable with the questions I was asking. And I'm like, well, I wasn't asking uncomfortable questions. It was that person's response. That's where my brain went. But what if I had asked this third party person in my yesterday scenario, as well as the one in the past racist related conversation, what if I just asked those third party people, like, why were my questions to another person uncomfortable for you? And dug into that to better understand it. I feel like there's often an opportunity in any relationship, romantic, friendships, professional, et cetera, or with strangers, like whoever we're in a dynamic with, there's an opportunity to notice our own triggers and our defenses. When I get defensive, maybe that's an opportunity for me to examine it versus leaning into it. And I could just examine it within myself. But if I feel defensive with somebody else, that I could even say out loud, like, hey, I feel a little attacked or I'm getting defensive right now. Can we explore this together? And then the consent comes into play too. Yes, I love this. I'm feeling a little defensive right now and would rather be on the same team. What's going on? And I think that curiosity, oh my gosh, especially in relationships, to take that step and say, I want to be on the same page. I want to choose curiosity and connection. How do we get there together? It's a game changer. I like those. I mean, these are questions that come up. I feel like since you and I both do coaching, like (laughs) when I started going through my coaching training, which is very recent, I felt like my whole brain opened up because it put me in a place of asking questions versus making assumptions. So it's been a very healing experience for me to learn how to coach effectively because the questions I'm very good at in general. I love questions because of my natural curiosity, but it's the type of questions I'm asking and not leading somebody to direction where I think they should be. That was a game changer. Like, let me not assume that you want something. Let me ask what you want. Or if I can't quite get there in my brain, I could ask, hey, I have two things, like two options for you. Do either of them feel good? Or is there another one I haven't thought of yet? And it changes everything when you get into that questioning versus assuming mindset. It does because it makes something that's limited and turns it into just like opportunity and possibility. That's the biggest shift when it comes to connecting. That's the biggest shift that we can have because the intention is to connect. It's not to be right. 
It's not to feel better. It's not to control. And so we ask the questions that bend as opposed to defend. Ooh, that was new for me. Bend as opposed to defend. That's really good. You said bend or mend. Bend, bend. with a beat. Ooh, because bend I also thought is interesting. Like you're bending bend, and you're bend flexible. or defend. Oh, I like yeah. both. <laughs> like, which one do we want to do right now? Yeah. Do we want to mend? Do we want to bend? Do we want to reflend? Nope. <laughs> do we want to mend, bend, or defend? I'm sure there are other rhyming words we can think of. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, yeah. it's true, though. It's like a real-time realization about these dynamics, which was something that you and I had intended on discussing. You seemed very excited about discussing getting our needs fulfilled. And I'm curious how that comes into play with what we're talking about right now. Yeah, I think that the needs thing has been really interesting for me, something I'm exploring and discovering myself, because especially as we have these platforms like Instagram and TikTok that are just blowing up and you have so much personal growth advice and self-help stuff and things like that, and just lots of different types of advice, especially when it comes to relationships, you know, where it's like, don't expect a partner to meet all your needs. Have them meet these needs. Have these don'ts. And it's like, where is that line of something that is unrealistic, an unrealistic request from either a partner, a coworker, a friend, whatever type of relationship it might be? And when is it that it's a societal-based norm that is either a preference or a conditioning thing? And I think that it's so interesting, especially when we talk about condition, I think people will opt out of communication as opposed to having these uncomfortable conversations about what's actually going on, how are you feeling, and what are your needs. I think what I've been exploring and discovering in my own life is that part of the reason is it might be because when you actually have these conversations, you learn what the true deal breakers are and you have to make a change. Change is super uncomfortable. So if we have these conversations and we're like, oh man, we're not compatible or we're not as close friends as we used to be and it's not worth the effort to see each other every Friday or whatever it might be, then we're going to have to take action because once you know, you know. And that is so much harder than not having those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of something I've been reflecting on as I've been reading this new book, which is so new to me. I haven't even memorized the name yet, so let me pull it up. I think it's called Overthinking About You. Have you heard of this book? <laughs> it really appealed. Yeah, that's what it's called. Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD, and or Depression by Allison Raskin. And Allison makes some really wonderful points in the chapter that I've been reading most recently or listening to as the audiobook was really interesting because she was talking about, and I believe her pronouns are she, Allison was talking about the communication breakdowns in relationships and how sometimes we avoid talking about the tough things, but we don't even give the opportunity to people. Like we might shut down, we might be quiet, we might ghost all these typical common things that happen in relationship dynamics, especially these days, how those don't give the other person an opportunity. Like if you don't share your feelings with someone, they don't give that person an opportunity to react to your feelings, to understand your feelings. I thought that was really interesting. Because I immediately started thinking about times in which I shut down. That's a coping mechanism for me. When I feel uncomfortable, I'll get very quiet. I'll shut down sometimes. I might stop talking to somebody. Like I do that as a protective mechanism. And what I've been reflecting on is how much that might have limited somebody. Because I'm assuming that my needs won't get met if I share them. I think that's what's going on there. Yeah. What feels uncomfortable about having that conversation? Well, one of my core wounds is not feeling seen or heard, like being misunderstood. It's a big thing for me. I've experienced it so much. And I think that ties into it. I don't know if that's the result of being a people pleaser, or maybe I became a people pleaser because I often feel misunderstood. And I think, okay, if I can get this person to understand me, I'll feel safe. Maybe I'll, my needs will be met. Safety feels at stake for misunderstood. What do you get from that safety if you are misunderstood? What do I get from that safety if I'm misunderstood? If you're not misunderstood, what is being understood? What type of safety does that give you? That's such a beautiful question. Perhaps connection, like a sense of bonding, security. 
because even just hearing you say that from everything you've talked about, right, is but shutting down immediately closes any chance of connection. So the thing that you're yearning for, the thing that you're trying to over control by saying, okay, if you're not going to give it to me, then I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to take what control I can because like, God forbid, you not give it to me and me feel that disappointment. And I think that you're not alone in that. Like that is a very hard thing because we all do want connection. But I think it stems back to what we're talking about at the very beginning of still be vulnerable. It's like Brene Brown's research. Everyone is expecting the other person to be vulnerable first. So if we want to really live an authentic, brave life, it means being vulnerable. That's got to be built in automatically. And that choice for connection. But a lot of the work that I do is building that internal foundation of, okay, let's acknowledge that. There's that fear. There's that pain. But what we affirm is, okay, no matter what, I'm going to be okay. I will always get my back. I will always take the steps and make the efforts and support and love and nurture myself to find those connections that are rewarding. And if I am rejected or I don't get that, I'm okay. I'm safe. It comes from me and gets fortified by you, but it doesn't originate in another person. Yeah, you added the word rejection in there. And that's a big thing is a lot of us avoiding rejection. I can't remember if it was in that overthinking about you book or not. But I heard recently about how like rejection is just like such a threat to our survival, like our deep fears of being rejected, outcast, not surviving because we're rejected. Most of us just experience fear of like emotional survival. Like if I get rejected, it's going to be so painful. I won't be able to survive emotionally. And we have a, I mean, huge mental health challenge in our society right now that's leading to people in some cases taking their own life. Like they're not surviving because the emotions became so painful. Maybe that's one of the reasons, not the only, but that could be a literal threat to you, like that deep pain. And rejection isn't the only source of that pain, but I think it's just such a big one. It's like, nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. I'm not worthy. And projecting all of these things onto that sense of rejection. No, we do. We attach so much meaning to rejection. Like I'm a huge advocate of the growth mindset. And so especially with like how I coach on it, it's like one of the aspects that I really lean into is like rejections, the failures, the missteps, it's, it's data, it's information. And the ways that we personalize it happens to an extent where it then becomes about me and people always want to get defensive here. Or usually I want to give them benefit of the doubt, usually get defensive and they're like, yeah, but it is about me. Like I went in for that interview. I asked that person for their phone number. And it's like, absolutely, you did. But do you think that person you asked for their phone number, do they know the extent of your beautiful, magnificent, unique being? In the five minutes that you talked, in those five round of interviews, do you think that they fully had the opportunity to see, know, understand? No, there's no way that they were looking at your capabilities, your potential, your possibilities, your desires, your dreams, everything that's you. So yes, it's a sliver of data that they got, that they gave you more data. And I think that for me, it really helps to bring it back to like an existence level, which people who've worked with me are probably rolling their eyes if they're listening. They're like, there she goes again, bringing it down. Because it is ground yourself and you close your eyes and you take that deep breath. And you are a human being here existing. And we separate that personalization just a little bit. There's so much that we can grow and change that why would we attach so much meaning to that small piece of information? That is bringing up something interesting that I don't think I've really thought about before, which is the surface level. That's where my mind went is this person seeing a fraction of me. And I get very triggered by things that are surface level. I have for a long time. And it, now I'm wondering how that's connected this misunderstanding thing. It's like you're assuming something about me, maybe by the way that I look. This happens a lot in relationships, dating, rejection of like, there's so much talk around being rejected for how you look. And I have to change how I look in order to not be rejected. That's something I think a lot about. That's something I pick up in our society's talk a lot, the pressure that women, biological or not in a gender sense, like the pressure to dress a certain way, to put on makeup, do your hair. Like I talk very openly about how I don't want to do those things. And that ties into, I feel like a distaste for anything surface level. I never want to feel rejected for the surface level because I know I'm so much more than that. So I have a fear around being rejected for the surface level. Sometimes I assume I'm being rejected from a surface level, like you're sharing somebody seeing just five minutes of me. 
And I crave going deep. I go deep on this podcast. I do everything I can to avoid small talk because I want to go deep. And maybe my desire to go deep and below the surface is my protective coping mechanism because maybe if I can prove that there's more to me than what's seen on the surface in those five minutes, maybe then I will receive the connection, the validation, the love that I'm craving instead of the rejection. That's good. I'm curious too. So with this stain for being judged for the surface level stuff, do you think there would be a shift if all of a sudden felt accepted from the surface level? What change do you think that would make or what reaction or response would that bring up? I feel a big desire that acceptance, like it's actually interesting, the phrase face value. Like if I could be accepted at face value, if I didn't have to prove myself, if I just felt like I could show up as I am without having to do any sort of performance, without having to wear a mask, just show up and immediately be accepted. That's like, to me, the ultimate experience. That's like, I find myself trying to accomplish that all the time, personally and professionally. And I think what's interesting in having this conversation with you is acknowledging like the defense, the armor, et cetera, that's there of like, assuming that I won't be. So maybe the shift is like, if I'm carrying around this assumption this person's going to assume something about me. Ironically, I'm assuming something about them. You know, like before I even get to know them, I'm thinking, yep, they're going to assume this. So I better quickly prove myself. That's been a big theme in my life. I mean, we're talking a lot about romance, but this extends beyond romance for me. Oh my goodness. This makes so much sense because especially like you're saying, it's going to change your energy, the way you interact, what you say to people. If that's what's resting on your shoulders, that's a ton of pressure. And I love what you said of like, what would shift if I knew I was going to go there and be accepted? What if instead of knowing you'd be accepted, you knew that no matter what their response was, you're going to be okay. You're still okay. You're still safe. And I think when we talk about one of my favorite things about working with people about disappointment is it's like we control our disappointment because we control our expectations. So one of the things that I've been grateful on of my weird life that I've had is that for some reason, at some point in my life, I took this concept in therapy of like people project things onto you. And I was like, okay, yes. Where it's like, I want to take ownership. So I want to take responsibility. However, I get in a situation if I'm super nice or friendly to somebody and they're like, okay, what? have a good day, whatever. I'm like, oh my gosh, they must be having a really bad day. Like maybe they accidentally laxative instead of their vitamins and they're just dealing with that all day. Or somebody cuts me off. I don't know why it always goes to like bathroom issues. But like, oh, they're just trying to get home to the toilet. Like, I'm going to make an excuse for them because that's more helpful for me than assuming that it's something wrong. Granted, I'm always going to check in on my behavior, but at a certain point, unless they're communicating, hey, the way that you use that tone, I did not love it. And I go, oh my gosh, I can definitely work on that for you. Perfect. But unless that communication is there, I am going to show up and do my best, but I'm also going to give you space to not be showing up and doing your best and still accept you. So what would it look like in your life? If you accepted people in that same way that you're wanting to be accepted. Totally. And that's such a brilliant question because it's something I actually explored in therapy recently. And sometimes I feel surprised at these realizations because I spend so much of my life focused on personal development and well-being. And sometimes I'm just caught off with, wow, I, despite all this work I'm doing, there's still things that I'm not recognizing as patterns within myself. And one of them was the judgment. I was expressing to my therapist how I felt triggered by this website that he had referred to me. And I was trying to describe why. Like, why was this website triggering? I said, it feels like this website's really rigid and I don't like that. And through the conversation, I realized like I was projecting things like it was like my own rigid thinking. And it was interesting because I think sometimes those judgments we have towards other people come out of this like self-righteous place. Like, well, they're doing something bad. I don't want them to do something bad. But like that in itself is exactly what you're feeling uncomfortable by. It's such an interesting thing to explore because it's also so basic in psychology of people being a mirror for ourselves. But sometimes it's hard to figure out what is actually being mirrored. We're so caught up in it that we don't even notice the mirror. That is so true. And I love what you said in the end. Very, very relatable because it's like, even if we know it's a mirror, but what in the mirror am I wanting to pay attention to? 
what is it trying to reflect back? And it's like, sometimes it feels like one of those funny house mirrors. Where it's like, there's a picture there. I can't quite make out what it's trying to show me, but I know it's there. Because it's not always obvious. Sometimes it is an insight into some trauma that we don't know is still raw or something that's sensitive that we haven't given ourselves time to sit with. And I love that perspective of, no, it's still a mirror. You can put a cloth over it. You can put paint on it. It's still going to be a mirror, however you disguise it. But it does. It takes that courage to look at it and say, okay, again, I'm allowed to make mistakes. It's safe for me to make, make mistakes. And going with the mirror metaphor too, one interesting exercise that reminds me of is we become so used to looking at reflections of ourselves, literally. Like if you look in the mirror, there are things about yourself you'll forget about, you won't even notice anymore. One of them for me is I have a scar on my, see, I don't even remember what side it is. I think it's on this, my right side. I don't even notice the scar. Only a few times in my life will I remember I've had the scar since I was 10 years old. It just, when I look in the mirror, it's covered up. I have to zone in and really focus and go, oh yeah, there's the scar that I forgot about. And yet I'm looking in the mirror often enough that it's something I'm not even noticing that's right in front of me because our brains will cover up something that it's kind of like covering up information that we either no longer need, no longer serves us, or we don't want to see. And all simultaneously, we will fixate on things. It's like sometimes we are so self-critical that when we look in the mirror, all we see is the negative and we completely tune out the positive because we don't want to see the positive. We want to be self-critical or self-sabotaging or whatever. So the mirror is such an amazing exercise for us, literally and figuratively. I was thinking the exact same thing, especially like with body dysmorphia stuff. It's like, really, I'm going to fixate on these three pores as opposed to my beautiful eye color or the awesome like eyebrow shape I have, or like, really? Like, that's what's going to take my attention. That's what's going to challenge and question. And it's so true. We hyper fixate or we ignore the things that are like, oh, this is actually something that I want to pay attention to, something I want to address. Like my jaw tension. Maybe if I look in the mirror and do jaw massages (laughs) instead of trying to pop this weird blackhead by my ear, like what is better not a true story at all. (laughs) How is my time better spent? I've calculated the amount of time that I've spent maybe looking in the mirror and fixating on things that are not perfect. Like, what could I do with that time over my whole life? I'd be terrified to know those statistics. To be totally honest with you, I would be terrified. Because not only is it higher than I want, but like, what a waste. When I started, actually, when I had that reframe and I started thinking of it like that, I spent a lot less time being critical of myself and a lot more time focusing on the things that I do want, what I enjoy, being an active participant of life. So why not? Like literally, why not? Absolutely. And it's all connected too, because I really feel like I'm going to learn so much exploring that question you asked about that led me to thinking about the assumptions, because I know that I carry around shame around my appearance. I feel resentful because I feel like that shame came from external reactions. And that's worth examining. It's a lot to figure out because it's been building my whole life. There's so much as a woman, for instance, there's just so much around beauty and our worthiness as women, as human beings. Just like it's so much to carry. And my yearning to go deep, my yearning to be valued beyond that appearance, like that's all tied into these values and all that. But that's led to it feeling uncomfortable to look in the mirror and examining myself. It's hard for me to focus on the things I like about myself. I think so many people struggle with that and it's sad to me. But what if part of the healing process for that is just continuing to acknowledge, okay, I feel unsafe. I feel like there's a threat to my survival here. Like, how can I help myself feel more safe? simultaneously feel less judgment to myself because that's what I have control over to your point. It's we can project all this control onto other people, pleasing them, manipulating them, like said, all these things that we do in our personal relationships. But if we can do that inner work of self-accepting, it's really, really hard, but it can be done. We do have control over it. And that I feel like ties into something I know we wanted to address, which was discomfort around taking responsibility the victim mindset 
And also, what really ties into this conversation around appearance is the, quote, ugly aspects of getting to empowerment. Even that word ugly feels triggering or uncomfortable to me because it's like, ooh, I don't want anything to feel ugly. <laughs> like, I want to see the beauty in everything. Let's see the beauty in myself. But ugliness can still exist outside of ourselves. So I'm kind of curious how you think we can move through those discomforts around responsibility, victim mindset, and empowerment. Yeah, I think that you're right with, or I should say right, but more of your spot on is a very common shared feeling of, okay, well, what actually is ugly? And even going back to what we were talking about before, one of the shifts that I really like to embrace is like, of course, there's you know, body neutrality as, as well as body positivity. But on top of that, I kind of like to switch into this mode of what if I treated myself like I was the standard for beauty? What if like who it's all made up? There's nobody forcing me to think anything otherwise. And the most maddening thing for me is that we have the society that almost like strips people of their ability to find beauty in the things that they do. Like I know people who love big noses. They think they're sexy and strong and powerful. And yet we have the societal standard where it's like, oh, that's not ideal. So it's like, who put this garbage out there that actually prevents us from seeing beauty? And it's like the transition for me is like, yes, I might not fit all of these things. There's somebody out there that's going to like it. So I would rather walk around being like, yeah, you like, give it a look, give it a look. You know what I mean? And maybe it's that's in a more playful way. But I think that that goes into taking responsibility of how do I respond? Yes, it absolutely sucks that we are in a society that values these certain strict confines of things. And if I don't fit that, it's going to be something that I think about. But it's also something that I choose to think about to a certain degree. We have a certain amount of control on how much we choose to engage. And I think that this is where like with mindset work, it's that neural reprogramming, neural rewiring that we of saying, okay, I used to go to the mirror and do this. I used to think this way. I'm going to actually start to shift this. I'm going to rewire these neurons that have been firing and firing and firing and getting awfully comfortable firing in that way. And I'm going to shift to the discomfort, but we have to make that choice. So I think when we're talking about the uncomfortable side of taking responsibility, especially with mindset work, it's because it's not like weightlifting where I go and I start with five and then I move to 10 and I will be stronger. It's all in our minds of, I have to hold myself accountable to say you are better than thinking like this in the sense of you deserve love and acceptance. You are worthy of having good thoughts about yourself and really putting a boundary up to say, this is a societal thing. This isn't a me thing. And I think that especially with the victim mindset, it is an awfully comfortable, safe place to be because it abdicates, hard word for me to say, it abdicates our taking responsibility and growing and moving forward. And I got to be honest, like you are victimized. It sucks. We are never justifying another person's actions ever. We are never saying, oh, well, it's okay what they did. No, that's not a part of shifting out of a victim mindset. And being victimized doesn't even give you a victim mindset. What we're saying with the victim mindset piece is like, we want to empower you to take action and have control where you can. This horrible thing happened. What do we do about it? What is within my control? And I think this is where we get into the more, and I'm you know, using air quotes, ugly side of personal growth because it isn't rainbows and sunshine and butterflies. Even with my mindset clients, they're like, I hear so much like, oh, it's about positive thinking. I'm like, honestly, like screw your positive thinking. I'm about helpful thoughts. And usually the more encouraging and positive thoughts are more helpful. But if we are distilling things down to data, if we are looking at what's helpful, is it helpful for you to wake up every single day, say, I'm an ugly, lazy piece of Probably not. But is it helpful for you to wake up every day and say, I'm proud of you. You're growing. You're changing. There are people out there that will love you. We're safe no matter what happens. I've always got your back. I'm going to protect you and look out for you. I'm going to guess so. I'm going to guess you're going to be more aligned with the life that you live and take the chances that get you there than if you're saying the other stuff to yourself. So I think the ugly side is that truth of like, and this is coming from a girl who bathed in the victim mindset. Like I created an entire spa around the victim mindset, like so much. I can't even go into details about it. And you just got to get sick of your own enough to say, I can be victimized. I can have a rough hand, but I'm so sick of living there. I want to change. Ugh. 
it's something I feel like a lot of people yearn for and they have so many tools and ideas. But as you know, as a coach, like that in itself can be so overwhelming to know where you want to be. You mentioned like all the different tips and things, the piece of advice we hear on social media that can be overwhelming. And so it really comes down to figuring out your own personal starting point. You've mentioned a few times like the values, like that is such a core part of the foundation is being clear on your values. I did that exercise with my therapist and it's something I return back to. And it's so lovely that you are just getting to know me, Cassandra, and you are able to like notice some of my values and remind me of them. Like that's so helpful. Understanding our strengths and piecing this together because this is really hard work. And it's a shame that so much advice in the wellness world has made it seem really simple because it's not at all. I mean, as I mentioned, I do this work every day through coaching, podcasting, personal research, and I'm still surprised in my therapy sessions. Whoa, I didn't even notice that. How are you able to shift something if you don't notice it? So I'm so grateful for people like you, Cassandra, that support people with this work through your coaching. And also, I'm curious, as I mentioned to you privately, I love your personal growth subscription box company, Coach Crate. I haven't received it yet, but I've seen it. And I thought, that is so cool. I'm curious how you use that as a tool to support people. Is that part of like your coaching? Is that separate? If somebody's looking for physical like tools, because some people don't just want the emotional tools. They want the physical stuff, the journals. For me, I'm really into aromatherapy as a tool. So what is in the Coach Crate subscription box and how do you use that as a tool to help people as a, work through these tough things? Yeah. So I love that use of language because that's exactly how Coach Crate was born. It was because I knew that there are people that either didn't have access to one-on-one coaching or it wasn't their speed or their style. And it is about like that accessibility. And so essentially it is just like personal growth box. So you get personal development book, you get a book guide that's made by me that it does kind of what we do having this conversation, exploring deeper questions. Okay, I have this book, but how do I actually use it? Because reading it is great, but I want you to think about it. I want you to explore. And then I create an entire coaching plan that's like, ooh, and we're going to use it too. So look out, you know, we're going to read it, we're going to explore it, and we're going to implement it. And so inside is switched to a quarterly system now. So it's a couple of books, a book guide for both of the books, and then products that either assist in that growth or just support and nurture. I have that little of extra you time or connectivity, candles, aromatherapy, all of those things to just make you feel good a little bit while we're being so uncomfortable. How can we pad this so that it's a combination of both the uncomfortable work, but then also the pleasurable side of this, which I don't think we talk about enough, which is I'm a huge proponent of you're not broken. We're not doing this to fix you. We're doing this to enrich your life. We're doing this to clarify, to strengthen, to fortify all of those things. And I think that that message gets lost along the way of like, okay, well, you need to fix these. Like, you're great. Are you good? What do you want to be doing that's better? And I think that in my coaching, a part of what I do is like, let's work on these things, but let's also work on you being good. Going back to that present stuff. So Coach Crate kind of addresses that. And then of course, workshops and a community to connect with. And it's just that starting spot of that journey, that extension. That's such a powerful offering that you've developed because I identify how hard it is to get started, how hard it is to keep the momentum. That's something that I've felt surprised by as I've embarked upon coaching myself is recognizing how challenging this is and then noticing that within myself, like this is not a quick fix and it makes me sad that's so much in life is positioned as a quick fix. But then I'm like, it kind of feels like a capitalistic mentality. Like, oh, let's tell somebody that they can fix themselves. Let's get them to think about that so much. And if they just buy this one product or service that everything's going to be fixed and instead moving towards the supportive place where people really just want some comfort, they want some accountability, they want someone there to root for them And like, we're going to walk through this together through the hardships. And I think I sense that about you, Cassandra, when you and I were first just going back and forth through the written word and noticing how 
you provide that support. And you've been so supportive of me today in this episode with your questions, which is so unusual. It's very rare that guests ask me things and dig into things. And I'm very grateful for that. And I imagine that the listener has taken away so much. There's so many little nuggets here. And if they haven't received what they're looking for yet, now they have this whole introduction to you and your work. You're doing content on TikTok, I saw, which is so cool. I love TikTok. And what do you think is the next step for somebody who's here and wanting more from you? Where would you direct them to begin? I would just say, first of all, thank you so much for all the kind words. It's been such an honor to talk with you. And thank you for exploring this stuff with me. And thank you for being uncomfortable and brave with me. I really appreciate that. As far as connections, yeah, connect with me. Find me on Instagram or TikTok, send me an email. I have group coaching things that really work on actually what you were saying of, okay, how do I get started and how do I keep going? It's like an app that we track what your goals are. I do one-on-one coaching. I do coach crate. And yeah, I just would love to talk. I mean, honestly, it's like I do what I do because I love people. I can relate to that. I love to talk. I love getting to know people. So I think that's why you and I are able to have this dynamic together, Cassandra. It's been so wonderful getting to know you during the recording before we even started. And I'm already looking forward to connecting with you in person. (laughs) For the listener, before we even started the recording today, I was like, hey, I want to know where you live. Because when I do one of my annual road trips and visits of specific cities, I would love to connect with you. And that's so exciting. So I'm grateful for your presence today here for me and the listener and also excited to see what's to come, Cassandra. And I will link to it all for someone who might be interested in Coach Crate, who wants to just get in touch and start talking to Cassandra. That is in two places to make it really easy for you as a listener. One is right below the podcast player in the description. There is a link there to take the next steps. You can also go to wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And there's a full transcript and a blog post style with quotes. And eventually the video will be up there. It'll all be contained in one place, including the links for Cassandra and all the wonderful things that she does in this world. So I hope you check that out. Thanks to the listener for joining us today. And thank you again to Cassandra. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.